Well, good afternoon, everyone. It is good for us to be together in this way, at least, as we continue to live in a somewhat virtual world. Uh, we are grateful that we can join voices and mind and heart in worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, for those who are guests with us, my name is Tim Shorey. I'm one of the pastors of Risen Hope Church, and it is my privilege to open up God's Word for you this afternoon. And so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And as you are turning there, I am aware, as I stand here this afternoon, of varying levels of grief that are being felt by many among us. It seems these days like there are endless reasons for lament as the days are troubling. And in these past several days, there has been a shocking twist to it through a sorrow that none of us saw coming in the death of Chadwick Bozeman. A fresh grief surged up in many hearts, in, including mine this past week. This young man played a superhero from an imaginary land, and yet in that role stood for something beautiful and something wonderful. I have read this week moving laments by brothers and sisters in Christ who who found in the Black Panther uh, character and the surrounding cast, together with the land of Wakanda, a, a cultural connectedness and shared rootedness that was personal, that was powerful, that was prized. And there is a great loss in the loss of this young man. And when you when you realize the cultural cries and longings that uh, Wakanda and a young black superhero answered, you begin to feel, you begin to sense how and why the loss of this young life wounds so deeply and leads to so many tears. This past week I have shared in that grief and share it now even with many of us. I believe it was C.S. Lewis, a man with whom I would have had some disagreements, but with whom I had many agreements. C.S. Lewis would often suggest that human mythologies that would include superheroes reflect a deep spiritual longing in our souls. Where, where did the fascination and longing for superheroes that most of us have experienced at some time or other in our lives, where did that come from? Why do we imagine the existence of the Black Panther or Superman or Batman or Spider-Man? Lewis argued, and I think he's on to something, that our superheroes may well reveal a deep inner longing and need that we all have for a real-life defender-redeemer, one who overcomes all evil powers and 
comes to our rescue, delivering us from the hellishness that is all around us and from the actual hell that is yet to come. We, we all need a supernatural hero, one who will rescue us from real-life demons and demonic villains that seek to take us down and destroy all that is good. Could it be that our longings and our loyalties towards superheroes may well be a faint whisper, a faint whispering echo of a deep spiritual need that we all have. We need an almighty, honorable, caring, courageous, invincible, redeemer, defender, who will come and do whatever it takes and whatever it costs to set us free, to set us free into life eternal and blessed. And my friends, this afternoon we have such a deliverer hero. We have such a redeemer defender. His name is Jesus. As we turn in our Bibles this afternoon to Matthew 27, I want us to begin with two verses alone, the first two verses of this chapter. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Those two verses just read do not sound don't sound like a superheroic rescue operation. And yet that is exactly what is happening as we open to this text today. I feel a desperate need for the Spirit of God to come and help me in delivering this message and to help us hear it. So would you bow your heads and hearts with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, would you come and show us Jesus in all of his love, in all of his grace, in all of his astonishing sorrows, in all of his redeeming love. Help us to know in the midst of our many losses here on earth that we have one gain, we have one person who is greater than all the losses put together. We have Jesus. Oh Lord, speak to us. Show us Jesus. Help us to know him better. Help us to love him more. Help us to adore him more. This we ask through his name. Amen. Well, the two verses that I have read for you are Matthew's introduction to his account of 
the actual crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has now been turned over by Jewish religious authorities into the custody of Pontius Pilate, who will now carry out his version of justice against the one who is Lord of all. You may remember that last week we read the entirety of Matthew 27 all at once, simply to let it wash over us with its cleansing power and grace and force. Today, we offer the first of three expositions that are rooted in the 27th chapter of Matthew and are calling this short series in this chapter simply Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows. And those of you familiar with God's Word will know that that phrase and that title is based on a 700-year-old prophecy that had been made by the, the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the coming of Christ, foretelling his arrival and his work. And in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1, we, we read these words, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He, this is referring to Jesus 700 years before he arrived, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Matthew 27 and the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth was the literal fulfillment of that 700-year-old prophecy right down to the details. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
if that is the case, then what were the sorrows that he bore, that he bore for you and for me? Please follow as we open up God's Word today and, and answer that question. What were the sorrows he bore? I would suggest to you that there are at least five that are presented in Matthew 27. He endured a trial without justice, a transfer without guilt, a travesty without restraint, and a tree without shade. And then next week, a trauma without equal. These are the five sorrows that Matthew highlights for us, and I want us to consider them together this week and next. First of all, our Redeemer King suffered a trial without justice. A trial without justice. Look back at chapter 26 and verse 59. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Then look ahead to chapter 27 in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. In verse 22, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The injustices of this mockery of a trial are obvious. You may or may not be aware that both New and Old Testament law required that for a person to be found guilty of a crime, he needed, first of all, to actually have done it, And then secondly, for it to be proven by two or three witnesses whose testimony were consistent and could withstand cross-examination, and yet it did not occur for Jesus. His was a trial without justice. And so Peter says over in Acts chapter 8, verses 32 and 33, like a sheep. He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth. Justice was denied him. We've all experienced this in some measure, haven't we? Surely all of us 
at one time or another have been falsely accused, have been unjustly treated, have been put on trial either literally or figuratively and found guilty of things of which we were not guilty. And there are times when we feel so very powerless and so very unable to to stand under such injustice. Well, there is surely an application for us here, an application of comfort to realize that our Lord Jesus knows the trouble we've seen. He, He knows from experience what it is to endure a trial without justice, to go through the fire of injustice. Justice was denied him, and so we can know that we have a great high priest, we have a wonderful Savior who we can go to in our time of trial and plead for grace to help because he knows what we are going through. He has been there. Justice was denied him. There's a really, really important question that, that needs to surface from this text. Why, why did Jesus not answer the charges? Could he not have set the record straight? Surely he could have. But he didn't set the record straight. He didn't defend himself. Why did he not defend himself? Why did he let this injustice happen? The reason, one reason, is because he wasn't there to defend himself. He was there to surrender himself in death. He had come to die. He didn't come to defend himself and his rights. He didn't come to stand up for himself. He came to lay his life down. And so in this hour of trial, both literal and figurative, in this hour of trial, he surrendered like a, like a lamb before its shearers is dumb. He surrendered not because he was weak, not because he was frail, not because he was a victim, not because he was a martyr, but because he was actually in charge. And he was the one choosing a path to the cross. And so he willingly, he willingly yielded himself up without defense. But there's another reason. Another reason why he was silent why he did not fight back, why he did not get angry, why he did not react and retaliate. It was so that he could set an example for us in those moments in our life when we face such trials. Peter applies this moment to our lives in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 24. Peter writes, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threatened, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges 
justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter says he suffered in this way. He suffered silently. He suffered without retaliation to be an example to us. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, Be like me in my gentleness. Now don't get this wrong. Jesus models gentleness in the face of evil, not because he was being passive, not because he was being weak. The truth of the matter is that in this moment, he is taking all kinds of action. He is the one in charge. He is the one taking step by step by step to the cross. He is the one that is surrendering to authorities. He is the one who even in the trial is concerned about others. If we pull together the witness of all four Gospels during all of this that's going on, he's giving Peter that look of conviction that leads to repentance when Peter denied him. In this trial and while this is all going on, Jesus looks down from the cross and he sees his mother Mary and makes sure that she is taken care of by saying to John, Behold your mother. In this trial, while all of this is going on, Jesus is forgiving sinners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In this trial, Jesus is not passive. Jesus is not indifferent. He is active. He is redeeming us. He is rescuing us. He is paying the atonement for our sin. He is not passive. He's active and yet without sin. And that's perhaps a, a good way to think about meekness and gentleness. It is, it is taking action without sin. It is Christ-like gentleness. It is taking action without retaliation, without rage, without anger, without sin. Jesus suffered through a trial without justice, with complete self-control and gentleness all the way through it actively pursuing our redemption and the well-being of everybody around him, even as he suffered. The first sorrow was a trial without justice. The second, a transfer without guilt. A transfer without guilt. In the interest of time, I'm not going to spend much time on this what I have in mind here is the development that happens beginning in verse 15 down through verse 26, where Pilate, frustrated with the insistence of the crowd to kill Jesus, reminds them that uh, he is willing to release a prisoner, hoping that they would say Jesus would be that prisoner. Uh, but there was another prisoner, Barabbas, and you know how the story goes. The crowd says, no, we don't want Jesus released. We want Barabbas released. 
And Barabbas, who was guilty of all kinds of crimes, is treated as innocent. And Jesus, who was innocent of all crimes, is treated as guilty. Barabbas's guilt is transferred to Jesus. And Jesus literally takes his place on the cross. A transfer without guilt. What a beautiful expression of the gospel, isn't it? He who knew no sin became a sin offering for us that we who are sinners could be counted as innocent in the sight of God. Oh, there's so much there, but let me just leave it at that. Jesus endured a transfer of punishment from Barabbas to him without guilt deserving that punishment. In the third place, he endured a travesty without restraint. A travesty without restraint. One, one definition of a travesty is a, a mocking distortion, a caricature, a misrepresentation of the truth. As we look at Matthew 27, we see unrestrained travesty, a mocking distortion, a scornful Rep- misrepresentation of the reality of who Jesus is by the enemies of our Lord. In, in chapter 26, verses 67 and 68, they mock his claims to be a prophet. Read this with me. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? It is hard to even read this text. It is hard to conceive of the eternal, spotless, beautiful, wondrous Son of God who had been the delight of the Father for all of eternity, now so humbled, so humbling Himself that He is willing to be spat upon in the face by creatures that he had made with his own hands. And they slapped him and mocked his claim to be a prophet. In chapter 27, beginning in verse 27, they mock his claim to be the king. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch 
over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. They mock his claim to be a king. They mock his claim to be a prophet. They mock his claim to be a king. And then in verses 39 through 43, or verse 44, actually, they mock his claim to be the Son of God. And those who passed by derided him and wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. They mock his claim to be the Son of God with even the guilty, murderous criminals joining in. Look at verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. It's almost too much to bear to read this. They treated our Lord Jesus with shameless mockery, a travesty without restraint, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned, he stood. Which leads in the fourth place to this. He suffered what I am calling a tree without shade. A tree without shade. Please follow me closely here. One of the most obvious and familiar details of the gospel narratives about Jesus' death is perhaps at the same time the most overlooked detail. It is how he died. In Matthew's account, Matthew 27, there are eight times, eight times when Jesus is said to have been crucified, or there are references to his cross. So in verse 22, the crowd says, let him be crucified. In verse 26, Pilate delivers him to be crucified. In verse 31, they led him away to crucify him. In verse 32, they compel Simon to carry his cross. In verse 35, when they had crucified him. They divided his garments in verses 40 and 42. They mock him, telling him to come down from the cross. In verse 44, those who were crucified with him reviled him. We must notice that Matthew doesn't simply say in coming to the end of the account of Jesus' life, and then Jesus died. Matthew doesn't even say simply, and then some of his enemies killed him. Now, there, there is focus not just on the fact that he died. There is focus on how he died. Because how he died 
matters? Why does it matter? Why this focus on His crucifixion? Why the focus on the cross or what Peter calls over in 1 Peter, the tree? Why this focus? It's because the Bible teaches that to die on a tree, if you were a guilty criminal and you died on a tree, that was a form of a curse. That doesn't mean that everyone who has been killed on a tree has been cursed by God. Indeed, history is full of innocent and good and honorable people who have died on trees and crosses and the like. But what it means is that when guilty people deserving of death hang on a tree, they are under God's curse. We get a hint of this, don't we, back in verse 29. We mentioned this in a recent message. We get a hint of the curse-bearing work of Christ in verse 29 where it says the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Thorns, you will remember, being a symbol of the curse from way back in Genesis chapter 3. Matthew, in giving the account of our Lord's death, is making sure we notice the aspect of cursedness, that Jesus is bearing a curse. This is important. This gets to the very heart of the gospel. This gets to the very heart of the Christian faith. You take this out of the Christian faith and you have denied the Christian faith. In Galatians 3 and verse 13, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Everyone who is guilty, who is hanged on a tree, is under the curse of God. The Scriptures teach us that if we disobey the law of God, we come under the curse of His judgment. He removes His blessing and a curse rests upon us. And we need a curse bearer. We need somebody to come and take that curse upon himself and bear that curse away. Take it away so that it no longer rests on us. And this is why the cross and the emphasis on the cross matters so much. Matthew is telling us that Jesus, yes, he is a miracle worker. Yes, he is a promise keeper. Yes, he is a way maker. But in many ways, first and foremost, he is a curse bearer. He is, he is someone who took on himself all our sin and all the wrath and all the judgment and all the cursedness that that sin deserves, and he bore it away for us. This is what Paul means in Philippians 2 when he says, being found in human form. Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is not saying there what is often said by way of explanation. He is not saying there that Jesus was willing to die and that He was even willing to suffer a really, really painful death like the cross. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that He was willing to be obedient to the point of death 
even death under a curse. He was willing to be hung on a tree for us, and it was a tree without shade. It was a tree without any covering, no shield between that tree and God Almighty in heaven. The holy God of the ages, the holy God who hates sin and has to punish sin, poured out His wrath upon Jesus on the tree. No shield, no, sh no shade there, just open naked before all, bearing our curse, bearing our sin, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Here is indeed the, the ultimate deliverer. Here is the ultimate Redeemer, what we dream about and fantasize about and imagine with our superheroes, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our dreams. He is the ultimate hero who has borne our sins away. My friends, I need to ask the question. Will you think about what this must mean about your sins and mine? How sinful must our sin be? That the only way it could be atoned for, the only way the curse could be lifted, was for the eternal Son of God to bear it on the tree. Just as we know the severity of a disease by the strength of the medicine needed to cure it, just like we know the seriousness of a crime by the punishment attached to it, even so we know the seriousness of our sin by the sacrifice that had to be paid to atone for it. We live in a day we live in an age in which people, even Christians, treat their sin lightly. God hasn't. God has paid the ultimate price to take our sins away, to atone for us. Man of sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came. He endured a trial without justice, a transfer without guilt, a travesty without restraint, and a tree without shade. So what will you take to heart in response to this? Perhaps some of you need to take comfort to heart knowing that Jesus has endured, like you, a trial without justice. But I think perhaps most of all, what all of us need to take to heart 
is that there is a sin bearer and a curse bearer. That our sins are that great, that serious. But His grace is greater than all our sins. Indeed, He bore the wrath reserved for me. Now, all I know is grace. My prayer is that if you have never trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you will do that right now. For you, like me, are a sinner. A sinner to the bone, to the core. Currently, without Christ, still under the curse, under the wrath of God. But if you will repent and trust in Jesus, He will forgive you all your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and instead of wrath, there will be grace. Instead of judgment, there will be pardon. Instead of a curse, there will be blessedness. Jesus invites you to himself. If for the first time or for the 1,000th time, Come back to Jesus and the foot of the cross and be amazed at such a wonderful Savior as this. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus, man of sorrows, it amazes us that you were willing to endure all this for us. What kind of love is this? Supernatural, super heroic, super glorious, beyond our imagination. What wondrous love is this? Oh, Holy Spirit, would you please pour out love an awareness of the love of Christ into all of our hearts. We might find rest and hope and peace, life and meaning in Him and the realization that at the end of the day, all we have is Christ. There is no one. There is nothing else. Amen.